Amen. Can we clap to our Jesus today, church? Good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat, if you will. You know, one of the things is you're sitting down and as you're getting your Bibles out and or your devices or whatever, we're going to look in Ruth chapter 4, and we're wrapping up this series that we've been in called Loyal Love. And you know, as I was listening to these guys uh, sing that song, such a humble and beautiful song. And by the way, thank you guys. Uh, and we, did, we decided to do an acoustic set today, and uh, it was beautiful. I love that. I love the simplicity of it. I love the humility of it. And you know what I, what I really love? I love this time of year because we're reminded of the great humility of Jesus. When we think about the way that he went about doing everything that he did and the manner in which he came, and we'll talk more about that today, and, and, that, and when we think about the kind of family that the God of the universe decided to come through that particular family line, as we look at this today, it's amazing. And, it, and, it, and, and, it, and when we look at it, we're going to talk about how it ties together out of the book of Ruth. We're ending this series today, and I've loved going through this book of Ruth over the last six weeks or so. It's been a phenomenal series as we've broken down things. I love what some of you have shared with me as we've looked in the book of Ruth. You've said, I've read through it many times, but I didn't know some of these things. I didn't know some of these truths, and that's what we always want to do with God's Word is pull those truths out and apply them in our lives, and I've loved being able to do that, one, teach it, and just what God has shown me in my life as well through that. And so, if you haven't been here with us, and maybe, maybe this is your first time, let me kind of catch you up to speed. Uh, by the way, if you would like to go back and hear the rest of the series, you can go to our media archive, and you can hear all of those. They're online, and, uh, and, and so we're really grateful for that. But let me catch you up. If you go to the first chapter of Ruth, what do we find out? There's a, a guy by the name of Elimelech, and Elimelech is a Jewish man who lives in a town, the town Bethlehem. We're very familiar with that town because of the Christmas story, and he lives in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. It means house of bread. And so I want you to think about that as in a few moments, we're going to remember the bread of life. We're going to remember Jesus. And I, I want to just say that if you're a believer, you want to begin getting your heart ready for this time of communion. Go ahead and begin doing that right now. The Bible says we should never enter into communion lighthearted. We should never enter into it without having examined ourselves and, and, and really, so make this, as I, as I teach you for a few minutes, make this a time of really preparing your heart, getting yourself ready for this time of remembering what Christ, uh, the, 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 the bread of life has done for us, okay? So Elimelech is in the house of bread. A famine comes on the land because the people in Israel were doing what was right in their own eyes. God brings some judgment to bring them back to himself. And Limelech, rather than, than pressing into God, he leads his family away from the house of bread, leads them to a place called Moab. Moab was a place where, where, uh, where there was a, a cursed people that lived there uh, because they worshiped a false god named Chemosh. And as, as, as the, the Moabites are there, the Israelites are not supposed to live amongst them. They're supposed to be out separate from them. They certainly are not supposed to intermarry with them because of the false gods that they worship. But Elimelech leads his family to Moab, and he makes this bad decision. While he's there in this decision of desperation, while he's there, the unthinkable happens. His wife, Naomi, and his two sons experience the death of their father. Elimelech dies. 
And just when you think that life can't get any worse, what happens? We, Naomi is in a place of mourning the loss of her husband, but what do we read in chapter one? We find out that also her sons who were able to take care of her, uh, Malon and Kilion, they also die. Now Naomi is away from home. She's alone, the Bible says. She's alone in a place far away from the presence of God, the people of God, and she, she decides at this point in chapter one, which is a very dark chapter, it's written that way for a reason. It's dark, it's disturbing, it's showing us that life is often like that, wouldn't you agree? It's showing us the brokenness of this world. So what, what ends up happening? She ends up saying, I'm going back home to Bethlehem. We're gonna, I'm, I'm gonna go back, and she, she says, my name is no longer Naomi. I don't wanna be called Naomi. Naomi meant pleasant one. She said, no, I'm changing my name to bitter. So she said, call me Mara. Now she had two daughters-in-law that were Moabite women. Her sons had married Moabite, Moabite women, and they weren't supposed to do this, but Orpah, who was one of them, said, I'm gonna stay here, and Naomi had encouraged her to do that. I'm gonna stay here, I'm not gonna go with you. And Ruth, though, in her loyal love for her mother-in-law says, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to take a risk, and I'm going with you, even though I'm a Moabite. Where you go, I'm going. Where you live, I'm going to live there. Who your people are, they're going to become my people. Who, and this is the most important thing, she says, who your God is, who is that? That's Jehovah. He's going to become my God. This was Ruth's conversion This Moabite is now placing her faith in Jehovah and is looking to Jehovah as her God now. They go back to Bethlehem. Naomi is bitter. They're in Bethlehem. The people welcome them there, but now they are very broken and they are very desperate and they don't have anybody to care for them. While they're there in chapter two, we begin to move into chapter two and what happens? In chapter two, Ruth says, I'm gonna go out And in this dark chapter of chapter one, Ruth says, I'm going to go out and I'm going to glean in some fields here to bring some food back for us. Now, what was gleaning? It was a provision by God's grace that he made for those who were widows, those who were orphans, and those who were foreigners. They were the marginalized. They were on the outskirts. And in a field, they would leave purposefully food on the outside for those who were poor to come along and get this. Now, what we find in chapter two is you're seen not only what's called the hesed love of God, the pursuing love of God, what you're also going to see is some hope begin to emerge. Because in chapter two, you're going to see the providential hand of God at work where it didn't look like anything good was happening for them. Now it says that Ruth just so happened, remember that? It's kind of a wink from the Hebrew writer. She just so happened to be in the field of a man named Boaz who just so happened to be in the family lineage of Elimelech. And you say, what what difference does that make? It makes a big difference. It's a big difference because in this society, it was, a, it was a patriarchal, patrilineal society, and it mattered. This means this, that Boaz, being a member of this family, was one of what is called kinsmen redeemers. He was supposed to, and this was another provision of God. They did not have life insurance for a widow who would experience the loss of her husband. A widow was very broken, did not have anybody if she did, especially did not have sons to care for her. They did not have a welfare system. She had nothing. 
Naomi, even the, 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 the property that belonged to her family was not rightfully hers anymore because there was not a man to claim that. So she was broken. So Ruth is there. And then we see in chapter 3, we see that God is orchestrating something. Naomi is beginning to get a glimmer of hope that God's up to something. And maybe some of you need to hear that today. Because sometimes it feels like when our life is falling apart, we wonder, could God be working in ways? And that's what we learn, that God is always at work. The providential hand of God can even take some of the darkest times in our lives where we can't see anything good, and he's working. And this is what Ruth shows us in chapter 3. Naomi begins to say, hey, I, I think you should go and you should, you should pursue this relationship. Ruth is interested in a relationship with Boaz. He's a single man. He's a worthy man. Pursue this relationship with Boaz. And so she does, and she in essence goes in chapter 3, and she says, I'm interested in you. I'd like to be married to you. I'd like to be in a relationship with you. And Boaz being a a righteous man, says, I'm interested in you as well. In fact, he's blown away that this woman would have anything to do with him. And he says, you've shown me a greater kindness by being interested in me. But you need to understand something. There's another one who is in line to be your redeemer. He's ahead of me. See, that's kind of how it worked in this, in this lineage stuff. And, 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 and he said, if we're going to do this, Ruth, we're going to do this the right way. So I'm going to go and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to this guy. I'm going to find out why he's not been doing his part in taking care of you. So he goes to the city gate and chapter four is where we get. Chapter four, he's at the city gate. And it says that the man who was the rightful redeemer just so happened to walk by at the same time that Boaz was there. There you go again. It's the providence of God. And I really want us to get this as a church because sometimes we can't see the visible hand of God at work, right? We need to understand God's always working. God's always orchestrating. God's always taking even the good and the bad in our lives. And God can make a masterpiece out of the mess. And so in chapter 4, Boaz confronts the guy. And he says, why, why, are, you, why are you not going to redeem this? Do you want to do this? The guy says, you know what? I will redeem this. I'll redeem this and because it, there's something good in it for me. And Boaz says, by the way, uh, in case you haven't remembered this, a Moabite woman comes with the deal and so does her bitter mother-in-law. The guy says, you know what? I think I'll pass. So Boaz, you know the story. It's beautiful. He, he, he wants to make this Moabite outside woman now a member of his family, make her his wife. You know the story. They have a child. We read it last week. It's beautiful. It's incredible. We see, we see God at work. When the darkness is in chapter one, you see God at work orchestrating this beautiful story in chapter four. Now, here is the thing, though. In this entire series, we've broken down 85 verses. We've looked at all of them. We've talked about all this. And I want you to know something, that as your pastor, it is never my desire just to give you a bunch of information so you just know a little bit more about the book of Ruth. What we always need to be asking when we break these passages down what does it mean for me here today in 2018? How does this impact me, Bart? What does this mean for us here today? Well, first, what you have to understand is what it means to redeem something. You need to understand this whole idea of kinsman redeemer. And we talked about what that kinsman redeemer was and what it is. We talked about it last week. 
that Boaz had to have certain credentials and qualifications to be able to redeem this situation with Ruth and with Naomi. What are those qualifications? If you're taking some notes, write this down. And I want to show you how all of this perfectly ties together, which leads us to this great redeemer in our own life. You need to know first that a redeemer has to have the right to redeem. You have to have the right to redeem before you can redeem. We talked about how Israel is this patriarchal, it was in a patrilineal society. What it means is that it was the responsibility of the eldest male to provide and to protect. It lies with that individual. And when a a woman would lose her husband in that family, there was, if there was an unmarried man, he, the eldest living one was supposed to come in and marry that woman to, to, and and she didn't have any kids to, to keep that, that, that lineage going for that particular family. And what do we discover? Boaz is in Elimelech's line. Boaz has the right to redeem, but not only do you have to have the right to redeem, here is something very important. You have to have the resources to redeem. You can be in the family line, but if you can't pay for that property and, and, and have the resources to properly redeem, then you're not able to do this. What do we know about Boaz? Boaz, chapter two tells us, was a very influential and wealthy man. Boaz had great resources. He was the big man on campus around town, right? He, he was, he was a, a guy that had been blessed by God in his business. He has multiple employees. He is able to redeem this property for Naomi. He's able to, to pay the price that needed to be paid in order to redeem this property and redeem this situation for both Ruth and Naomi to take care of them. He has resources. But here's the other thing that you got to know about a redeemer. A redeemer has to have the right, he has to have the resources, but if a redeemer doesn't have the resolve to do it, because think about the first guy, remember he's no name, no name had the right, no name had the resources because he said, well, I'll buy it, but then he didn't want the deal because of the Moabitess Ruth, and the, but, but here's what he said, I'm not interested. I don't think I have the resolve to do this. He doesn't want anything to do with this Moabite. She's an undesirable. He doesn't want anything to do if it's going to hurt his family line. She's marginalized. She's stigmatized. She has serious baggage. This woman comes with a past. In fact, many scholars believe that she was even barren and unable to produce an heir that would continue that lineage, right? So from an outside perspective, You need to understand, thinking from the Hebrew mindset in this, you got to understand that looking at it from face value, none of this seems like a good deal for Boaz. There was not anything to be offered to Boaz other than the love that he would experience in the relationship that he would find in this relationship with Ruth. And here's what this translates for us today, okay? We need to know that Boaz did not need Ruth. Boaz wanted Ruth. Boaz had an affection for Ruth. Boaz desired to be in a relationship with Ruth. And that is the bigger picture that's in this picture of the book of Ruth, that he wanted this. Now, there's an even bigger picture for us in all of this, in this what's called hesed love, pursuing love. We are the undesirables. 
the Bible would tell us that we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners, wouldn't you agree? Amen, right? We're all broken. We're all messed up. We all have baggage. We all have dysfunction. Now, here's the bigger picture. Yet God still loves us. You see, what we all have to understand is that God doesn't need us. He wants us. He wants you. When you enter into this Christmas season, we have to think about it in those terms. He doesn't need us. He wants us. He didn't have to come. He decided to come. He had a resolve to come, right? So we get to the end of the story, and and I kind of always think like this. I always start thinking, what if these Bible stories, what if it was like a movie? Wouldn't the book of Ruth be an incredible movie? It'd be this blockbuster, right? Because it's such a beautiful story. It's a story of stories, and and I kind of just envision it like this movie, right? It's so dramatic. I can hear the music kind of playing behind this, okay? It's dramatic music in Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. It says, so Boaz took Ruth into his home, and she became his wife. And when he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. Remember in chapter one, she didn't have anybody May he do this in your life, for he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons, Naomi. Naomi then, and I want you to start thinking like this movie, okay? There she is. Naomi is there, the woman who has been so bitter and so broken, and now you can see her. It says she took the baby, cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. And I see in this movie, right, there is bitter Naomi now has a contented look on her face where her life has been so broken and so messed up, a gratitude has settled in upon her, and now she is basking in the goodness of God, how God can even take the darkest times in our lives and begin to work them for his good. And I see Ruth probably is sitting right next to her, right at night next to her mother-in-law. Ruth's probably smiling. The camera's kind of beginning to kind of zoom out a little bit there. And I see Boaz, his name means strong one, with these big rippling arms, right? Maybe the rock would play Boaz. I don't know. And he's like, he's like hovering over them and he's smiling over them, right? As the camera is panning out and you're, you're like, the lights start to come on and you're like, oh man, that was the greatest movie ever. I love it when movies end like this, right? It's a happy, beautiful story and you think it's over, And then a voice like James Earl Jones comes on. And you're like getting up and the popcorn's falling off. And you know, have you ever done that in a movie? You think it's over and then they add something else. And you're like, oh, wait a minute, there's more. And and everyone's standing around in the movie theater and this is, you hear this voice. By the way, we have the new James Earl Jones voice in our church. His name is Jonathan Spells. I don't know if he's in here, but he did the the voiceover for our nativity outside and it's awesome, right? And I'm like, I wish I had a voice like that, all right? So think of James Earl Jones or someone like that kind of saying this, uh, not my wimpy kind of voice. Here's what it says, the neighbor women say, now at last Naomi has a son again this is why you're getting ready to walk out and they named him Obed 
and he became the father of Jesse, who was the grandfather of, everyone say it, who? David, and you need, to, you need to know that the Hebrew listener, the Hebrew people who are being written to, this is the place where they, if they were in the movie theater, would be like, what are you talking about? David came from that? Shut up, man. This is incredible. David came from this family, the giant slayer came from that messed up relationship? Could God actually do something with someone like this? You need to know, and see, sometimes we read through these books so fast, I want every person here to know that was a mind blower for them. They couldn't believe that David could come out of this kind of line, the greatest king that Israel had ever known, the legendary David, David from the house of bread, Bethlehem, right? Keep that in mind. Keep it in mind. You're blown away by what God has done in this little love story. And then it continues on, James Earl Jones's voice. This is the genealogical, I won't do it the whole time, the genealogical record of their ancestor Perez. You say, what does that even have to do with anything? He comes from a lineage of Judah. You say, well, that doesn't mean anything to me. It will. It actually does mean something to you. You just may not realize it yet. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab. Amenadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. A fish. Okay. And Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of, again, help me out, who? David. This was the mic dropper moment in the book. By the way, this book is thought to have been written while David was king. Now we normally, let's be honest, we normally don't get too excited about reading through lineages in the Bible, right? It's not usually, we usually see these names and we're like, oh, blah, 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 you know, or we skip the page. How many of you do that? Raise your hand. All right, can I tell you, I used to do that too and I still do that sometimes. But here's what I want you to know that God showed me a few years ago. Every name is inspired by God. You'll see it. Not only is every name inspired by God, you also need to understand that every name is a person. It's a person that God loves. A person that God selected to put in this lineage. It's a person that mattered, right? They mattered. Even a Moabite named Ruth, as you will see. Is God really able to use people who have nothing to offer? Can God really use dysfunctional families? Can God really do something with the broken and the barren who need a miracle? Well, God included in his grand plan a Moabite. And this is what's so beautiful. Here's the big idea of this book. If you're writing some notes, here's something great to know. This is something good for you to know going into Christmas. This is something good for you to know before you receive communion. Here is the idea is that God can use ordinary and broken people. 
In fact, do you realize that he really enjoys doing that? That he takes us in our brokenness. People with dysfunctional past, people with plenty of baggage. Anybody with baggage, you don't have to raise your hands, but I bet you got it. Anybody whose families are a little bit messed up. Anybody have messed up families? Anybody? Okay. Only me? Okay, thanks. And um, no, I know you do too, right? Because a lot of you talk to me about them, okay? And, 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 and anybody have the crazy uncle at Christmas or anything like that, okay? Anybody have crazy family members? Raise your hands. Anybody? If you're not raising your hands, probably you. Um, we've, got, we've got craziness, right? We've got all kinds of stuff. But look at what he does. All these folks, he uses them to do extraordinary things. I'm wanting you to hear about what, how God picked this family. God used this broken family. What do we see in this book of Ruth? Here's some things to write down, right? We see that God can bring his people from death to life because in chapter 1, it was all death, wasn't it? It was death for Naomi. Her husband died. Her sons died. The dream of her family died so much, she said, I'm bitter. It could be where you are. God can also bring people from bitterness to joy. That's what this book shows us. He takes this, he takes this, this bitterness, and, and I, I, she said, my name is bitter. Don't call me Naomi anymore. I'm very angry with all that God has raised his fist against me. I can't see anything good coming. We see in chapter 4 something's happening, and I imagine people were coming, and they were probably calling her Mara because she had been bitter, and maybe while she's holding Obed, she says, I don't want you to call me that anymore. I want you to call me my name again, which is pleasant. God has turned bitterness to joy. God can bring his people from emptiness to fullness. Do you remember what she said in chapter one? She said, I left Bethlehem full. I've come back and I'm empty, right? But God was going to fill up that emptiness in her life. And here's what we see. God can bring his people from despair utter despair to a place of hope. That's what the book is all about. They've lost everything in chapter one. You get to chapter four. Not only do you see Obed, who is in the family, you see David, the great king, the legendary king that would come out of this. You say, why are you talking about this lineage for us at Christmas? Because here's the bigger picture for us. There would come out of this line another redeemer, amen? One who would come out of this line that was greater than even Boaz. A redeemer that would come out of this line that was greater than even King David. One who would come out whose birth we celebrate not only at Christmas time, but every day of our lives if you are a believer. He is the one who is able to bring hope into our despair. He's the one that can bring life into the death that is in our lives. The bitterness, he brings joy into the bitterness. He's what the scripture says is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's also called the son of David. He's the long-awaited Messiah. He's not only a king, right? Because this was a line of kings. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, amen? This is who he is. And this one who was a king who should have been born in a palace elected to be born in a stable with barnyard animals. That is, who is it? It's our Jesus whose name means he who saves. Amen? Do you know what he also called himself? Where was he from? Bethlehem. 
What did he call himself? The bread of life. He said, I am the bread of life. He is our redeemer. So here's what we need to be asking, though. Does Jesus have the right to redeem? Does he have the right to actually redeem us? In the, same, in the light of the same checklist that we had as, uh, when we were looking at Boaz, who had the right to redeem, the, he, he had the resources, right? And he had the, res, the, the response and the resolve to redeem. Does he have the right? Well, when you begin to look at the lineage of Jesus, I want you to skip just very quickly over to Matthew chapter 1. Okay, go there with me. And you need to know that Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, and he was seeking to show the credentials of Jesus Christ to the Jewish audience that Jesus was actually from the kingly lineage, that he has the right because of his lineage and who he comes from. Now, remember a few moments ago that we said that God uses broken. He uses dysfunctional. He uses the barren. He uses them to do extraordinary. What I want you to pay attention to is that there's this tension in the lineage of Jesus. There's a tension with all of these people that will be mentioned with the great sin that is in their lives and the grace of God who is acting and covering that sin in their lives. What we should know is every person who's mentioned in this list was a sinner except for Jesus. Jesus was the only one who was, was perfect and who had never sinned. We see that he's going to use imperfect, broken, messed up people, that he selected this family. What does it say to us to be born out of? That they were used by God to do something extraordinary, that God can take messed up people and bring something good out of it. So in Matthew chapter 1, again, it's never a preacher's aspiration to preach through a lineage, but we need to understand something that these names matter. That it matters. So it says in chapter 1, and I'll go through it quickly, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of who? Jacob. What does his name mean? Deceiver. You know his story? He was a rascal, all right? He was messed up. And he deceived. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. I wish I had time to break them all down, but I don't. Judah and his brothers. Do you know who Judah and his brothers were? They were the brothers who sold their brother Joseph into slavery. You think they had a dysfunctional family? That's messed up, guys. They trafficked their brother. This is what they did. It's messed up. Judah was the father of Perez. Zerah, whose mother was... The Jews who were listening to this were like, what? Tamar. First of all, a woman is being mentioned in this lineage. That was not typical. That was not something that happened. It's a patriarchal, patrilineal society. And now a woman named Tamar. I don't have time to tell you the story of Tamar, but if you, if you know it, it's messed up. It is dysfunctional. This family was so broken and so messed up and Tamar is being mentioned and, and, and it's scandalous some of the things that happened with her and, and now she's being mentioned in this. Here, here's what Matthew is doing. He's doing the very thing that Paul talks about. You're gonna see in this lineage, you're gonna see both Jew and Gentile mentioned. You're gonna see both men and women mentioned, not just Jewish men only. You're gonna see people who are, who are virtuous type people and you're gonna see some really messed up people. Paul said there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, there's neither, uh, he said, we're all equal at the foot of the cross. This is what you're going to see. We're all at the foot of the cross on equal ground. 
in need of a savior and a redeemer. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab. Easy for me to say, right? And and, and are you seeing how it's all the same? Amenadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was who? Rahab. What do we know about Rahab? She was a prostitute. Go check her story out. She was a prostitute that God got her attention, brought brokenness in her life, redeemed her, and now she's in the lineage of the Messiah. Rahab was a prostitute. She's the second woman who's being mentioned here, right? She has a past. You know, I started wondering about this. I wonder if one of the reasons why Boaz was so kind to a woman like Ruth who was on the outer edges, who other men would have taken advantage of her, I wonder if Boaz was kind to Ruth because of what he watched his mother go through. Because God can take things like that in our lives and bring tenderness to us towards people. Amen? We don't know that for sure, but I wonder. I wonder about that because Boaz had a shady history as well. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. The book we've been studying, there's the third woman who is mentioned in this lineage. Ruth made the list. She was a Gentile. She was a Moabite. God is using anybody and everybody to bring about his purposes. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was... Do you know their story? It's not pretty. David, this great king, entered into a season of pride and lust and murder. And this is an ugly, ugly past. But here they are being mentioned in the lineage of our Savior. God brought brokenness into their lives. They repented. God brought grace. God brought forgiveness. And the plan would continue. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. What I could tell you, and there's not time, is I could tell you every one of these men who is mentioned right here, they were kings, and every one of them were messed up. If you read the book of Kings, you'll see, First and Second Kings, how messed up these guys were. Many of them were idolaters. Many of them were adulterers. Many of them had messed up in some serious ways. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Aren't you glad I'm preaching today and not you, right? Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Amon. Amon was the father of Josiah. And Josiah was the father of Jehoiachin and his brothers who were born during the time of the exile to Babylon. We studied it in Daniel. Why were they exiled? Because they had entered into idolatry. After the Babylonian exile, that was a 70-year period where they were exiled, Jehoiachin was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. If anybody's looking for a name for a baby, about to have one. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud. Abiud was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Akim. Akim was the father of Eliud. I'm guessing that is junior. Eliud was the father of Eliezer. Eliezer was the father of Mathon. Mathon was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, who was the husband of, help me out, who? Mary. We finally got there. Amen. 
And you realize out of all these women who are mentioned that Mary is the only one. She was a virgin. She was virtuous. She was a very ordinary girl. Isn't that interesting how God will use someone like this? She gave birth to Jesus, our Messiah. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So all that to be said, I raise the question, does Jesus have the right to redeem? He came through a lineage, didn't he? Just like Boaz, of the same line of Boaz and Elimelech, a kingly lineage. Uh, Here's the question, though. Does he have the resources to redeem? What do you think? When he came into this earth, he he was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Does Jesus have the resources to redeem? Well, he had power over sin and death. He commanded the sick to be healed, the lame to walk, the blind to see, the mute to speak, the demons to flee in his presence, even the dead to rise. The scripture says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Does he have the Does he have the right? Does he have the resources? I think he does. But the greater question is, does he have the resolve? Has he resolved to redeem us? Those of us who have nothing to offer him, does Jesus have the resolve? I think we can agree that he does. He's proven this, that even when we had, even when we had like Ruth, nothing to offer, we were completely hopeless and helpless. When Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and in his humanity, what did he say? Lord, if there's any other way, any other way, can we do it that way? But then what did he say? Not my will, your will be done. What was that? His resolve. His resolve. Paul writes about it like this, and then we will take communion together Romans 5, 8, he says, Paul says, when we were utterly, will you say it with me? How were we? Utterly helpless. Like Naomi, like Ruth, we had nothing to offer. You see, we can't earn our salvation. We can never be good enough. We can be pretty good people, but we can never be good enough because of our sin. Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But look at this, verse 8. But God showed, that translates proved, it translates demonstrated his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us While we were sinners, and that is the reason for Christmas, that was his resolve. Jesus willingly went to a cross. Nobody made him go there. Nobody made him come into this world. He did not need us. He wanted us. And what did he do on that cross? When he was there, he laid his life down and he paid for our debt of sin. Someone had to pay and only he could be the one to pay because he was sinless and perfect. He redeemed us out of that slavery of our sins. When he said, it is finished, that is to die. it means paid in full. Our debt has been paid, and for all who will trust in him, he will give you the gift of eternal life. How did he pay? He paid with, our, with his lifeblood. He paid for our sins, a debt we could never repay. 
Uh, he was buried. He was raised from the dead. First Corinthians says, Paul says in first chapter six, you were bought with a price. The blood of Christ, therefore honor God with your body. So as we come to take communion, I want you to think about all of that as we enter into this holy time. If you want to bow your heads right now as we just have just a season of reverence before God, you can bow your heads. I'm going to say a few more words to you to get your heart ready for this. If you want to keep your eyes open, you can do this. Our band is going to come back up here. We're going to do another song in a moment. But I want you in this moment, I want you to think about and remember your Redeemer. As we go into this Christmas season, we need to pause, don't we? In the middle of all of the chaos, which typically ensues, and the busyness and the traffic and all the places we have to be, we want to pause and we want to remember what this is all about. We want to remember his sacrifice. We want to remember why he came, that he chose to come for us. We want to remember that because of what he has done, that he can even use a person with a broken background like me and like you. Ephesians chapter 1, let, let this verse just wash over you. Listen to this. Paul writes this. In him, that's Jesus, we have redemption. You've been redeemed. Through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that's his resolve which he lavished upon us and in light of Ruth the lineage continued on through us do you realize that because of what Jesus did we are outsiders we were outside the family of God the Bible even says we were enemies with God but now because of the blood of Christ when you place your faith in Jesus, he adopts you into his family. You know what that means? You have the rights of one redeemed. You now have the resources as one who has been redeemed. But the question is, will you live with a resolve as one redeemed? I'm going to pray for us. And then there's going to be ushers who will direct you if you feel led to come today. If you don't, you can remain seated. You'll go on the outside aisles. You will come to the station that is nearest to you where your usher directs you. You'll take the bread. You'll take the cup of juice. You'll go back to your seat. And at your own pace, you can remember the bread is the body of Christ. It represents that body that was broken for us, the juice, the cup. It's the cup of his blood that was spilled to pay for our sins. Let's remember him. Lord, we thank you for this lineage that you come out of, Lord. We thank you that you chose a family that was broken. You could have picked any family. You could have, you could have elected to be born in a palace, but instead, Lord, you came in a place that was so humble. You humbled yourself Philippians says, even death, not just any death, but death on a cross. You paid for our sins, Lord. You made it possible to be brought into this family of God. We were hopeless and helpless without you. But Lord, you have brought life where there was death. 
we want to remember your body that was broken today. You suffered for us. We want to remember your blood that was shed for us and that because of it, we are clean in your presence. We thank you for what you did for us today. Thank you for the humility of Christ. We honor you. We worship you, Jesus, and it's in your name that I pray.